This is Real Estate Rookie, episode 117. And that was kind of one of the things I learned throughout this whole process was don't take no for an answer, but just like see what angle you can come in at to see if they'll say yes eventually. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. Tony, what are we going to talk about today? We have got uh, probably one of the, the coolest episodes we've done in a while, just because of like the the variety and the speed at which this guest moved with. So today we've got Amanda Bolin on the podcast, and Amanda talks about how she went from uh, running a business in the oil and gas industry to flipping her first house to buying a farm to buying not one, but two 12-unit apartment complexes and and just so many golden nuggets as she kind of breaks down her story. And she really describes to you the reasoning as to why they made these pivots, these transitions. And the best part, though, of the whole episode is how she financed these deals after hearing multiple times, no, or you can't do this, is going out. And even while she's purchasing a property, the financing rules change on her and she has to scramble and change and just a lot of great uh, key points and a lot of value she'll add to you guys as to you guys are getting your first deal or even your next deal. How do you, um, you know, overcome that obstacle? And especially when you keep buying properties and you don't have any money left, what do you do and how do you, uh, acquire the next one. And I think her mindset segment was also one of my favorites as of late. She just does a really, really good job of breaking into or breaking down really a lot of the fears that I think hold the Ricky investors back. So make sure you listen for that piece as well. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent to retirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. 
Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a complete breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. So RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability and earnings. With Plaid certified tenant income and asset reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. It's time to say goodbye to that whole gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. Now, Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for only $1. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP Like Bigger Pockets Investor for six months of Rent Ready for only $1. Let's bring Amanda onto the show. Amanda, let's start with that first flip there. What advice can you give to a rookie investor who wants to get started and possibly do their first flip? Because, you know, a rehab, that's a very common, scary thing that might hold people back from getting started. I'd say to really know the market that you want to get into, get to know it as best as you can. And if you don't know it per se, find somebody on your team or somebody that you can tap into their understanding have a really clear idea of what the sale price is going to be at the end and uh, a very clear budget and very thorough. And with that budget, always round everything up. And I know that's what we did on our first one. I think that was a large part of it with the success of it was making sure that our numbers were slightly inflated and, uh, it really helped us in terms of being able to be successful with that first one. That's great. And then after you decided to transition into multifamily, what were some of the things that were different from flipping that maybe those were some obstacles you had to overcome to make that transition into a different real estate strategy? I think getting our heads around the bigger numbers. By the time we were successful with our first deal, like I had dismissed a lot of the larger number deals because they seemed too big or too much or something like I wasn't special enough, we'll say, <laughs> to approach. And once I realized it's just a number and you figure out the rest, that was a big part hurdle to get over and realizing that even though it's a much larger number, it's not so scary once you look at the business side of it. And once you realize that in the commercial space, there's a lot of ways to get really creative that is perfectly acceptable and isn't frowned upon by the banks. Can we dig into some of those? For sure. Which which part of that? Like the creative side or or which? Yeah, just, you know, I, I guess a couple of things, right? Because you mentioned that the bigger numbers scared you earlier on, which I think is a very common fear for newer investors is that, you know, they, they see the extra zeros and it, it can kind of scare people away. So how did you kind of break past that fear? And then we can talk about the, the creative financing afterwards. Yeah, I think originally we played it safe looking at deals that were price tagged at maximum house purchase price that we could buy. And so we figured we could do a six or eight plex. And so I've been running the numbers on a lot of that. I use the same spreadsheet on repeat. So you see things kind of apples to apples as best as you can deal to deal. And so I'd analyzed a lot of deals leading up to this one. And I started analyzing some of those deals in the seven figure range. And that was kind of like, oh, this is, this is a lot different. And I started to realize 
they just worked better. They had better returns, better stability. Vacancies didn't harm them as much in terms of the cash flow. And that's when it started kind of, I guess, started making it more achievable and more safer seeming with the larger numbers. So I think that was the big one. And then when we finally landed on that first deal where the numbers just made so much sense that I just, it, it snapped something in me. And I thought to myself, we just need to make this happen. <laughs> we can't let this one go. And so that was kind of what gave us the confidence to kind of pursue it or be even okay with it was just knowing how good the deal was that we just couldn't let it go. So uh, let's talk about the financing portion of it, right? Like you're, you're going from, you know, six figure purchases into seven figure purchases. How did you, did you guys just have all these funds available? Did you, did you have to partner with somebody? How did you make the financing work? So that was part of moving into the multifamily space as we had had someone who was on our power team per se who was a professional who was seeing the numbers from the flips and we kind of got together to talk. And one of the things they had indicated was they would be interested in partnering with us. And so that gave us some of the confidence to move forward was knowing that we would have the capital, whether us or alongside of someone else to pursue a multifamily deal together. And I guess that's kind of where it began, but as the deal progressed and we were new to it, it wound up being something we need to pursue solo as partners weren't necessarily ready to take that step forward with us as well. And that's, that's okay with us. So we didn't technically have the full amount of capital available. We had means like we were going to figure out putting a HELOC on our house and selling some grain that was in the bin. And that was kind of part of it was pursuing this deal to begin with. When I went to the mortgage broker with this idea, he was, <laughs> I didn't realize that I needed to have my capital available to start the funding process. I thought I would just need it at the end for the closing date. So I was like, I'll figure it out by then. And that quickly changed to being like, no, no, you need to be liquid now <laughs> to be able to move ahead, which we weren't at the time. So talk us through how you guys overcame that challenge. What did you guys do? <laughs> I started first. It was defeat. It was pure defeat. It was this deal's going to go dead. I can't even start the funding process. I only have so much time to get through due diligence, including getting my financing in line. I can't even start the financing line, which was the longest time period, uh, especially with the type of funding I was going for until I was, could show the liquidity. So either having a partner on board and um, very early on in the conversation with the sellers, I talked to them about vendor financing and broached the idea. I didn't ask them for it. I just asked them their familiarity of it. And, and kind of indicated, like, would you be open to it in the future should, you know, we decide to pursue that? And they said, yeah, we could potentially be open. So I kind of left it at that. And when I came into the hurdle with the lender, I hung up the phone and I was really defeated for probably the day. And later the day, a thought came to mind was if they accept investor, like partner capital as down payment, would they would they accept a vendor take back, which is seller financing? And so I called my mortgage broker all excited. And I was like, so would you guys accept a VTB as the down payment? And he was just like, yeah, but you're going to have to get them to sign off on it. And I was like, how about like a commitment letter? Because, you, you know, the the actual VTB or the seller financing is a document drafted by the lawyer at the closing table kind of thing. Right. So it's not something I'm going to have up front but you need to give your lawyer something to go off of. And so, yeah, the commitment letter would work. He let me know. So 
I went back to the sellers and reached out to them and just said, Hey, you know, we are talking about it. Would you be open to a set amount? And I put it quite a bit higher than we needed and a set interest rate. And I kept it very simple. I asked for a five-year term, the same length as our financing. And they told me they'd think about it and call me back. And they called me back and agreed to slightly lower, which was still more than I was thinking we would get. <laughs> and a, an interest rate that was agreeable for the both of us. And I said, great, I'll get the paperwork over to you. And I popped into the city the next day and got everything signed off and fired it off to my mortgage broker. And I was like, and it's go time. <laughs> like, let's get this rolling. And so I think he was partly surprised uh, that we had pulled it off. I sure was. And I was just excited to be back in the game and a chance to move forward to head to the closing table. Because at that, you know, for 24 hours, I felt like we had lost it all and it wasn't going to go anywhere. What did the lender look at? So those terms, did he take that and look at, okay, so this is what your your payment will be for this and then look at it and make sure that you could still afford that with the the property value, the cash flow from the value and everything like that. What are, if someone wants to do it this way, what are some things they have to know when they're creating these terms and as far as what their their payment will be? Yeah, I think in the commercial space, they largely look at, does the deal still cash flow and can you service the debt? So there's there's a, a debt servicing multiplier they use. And so if you're adding in seller financing, we put it as a second position behind the first mortgage. So it's basically a second mortgage. So when I run it in my calculator, I throw in there. So I have the, the interest only payment. It's really important to set up those types of financing as interest only to keep your debt service ratios down. And so that really helps. And that will really help with your cash flow too. Uh, so it's essentially a balloon payment at closing. And so you want to plan out a couple things. One is how you're going to pay that back, but more so the lender really wants to see that the deal is still going to cash flow and be a stable purchase that the business, which is the multifamily property itself, can afford, not you as a personal um, paying for that payment. Was this your first time doing a commercial loan or had you done a commercial loan previous to this on the, the multifamily? Yeah, this was our first commercial loan. Besides that, was there anything, uh, any other big differences for someone that's maybe going to take the, make the transition from doing residential loans to commercial loans? What are some things they should know before they even approach a lender? For the commercial side, it's very different. I always say everything you know about residential, you can practically throw it out. They want to see that your deal is going to cash flow, that the business, not yourself personally, but your business is going to pay. So that building is going to pay for itself. It's going to handle the debt. It's going to handle whatever plans you have for it. Um, maybe you're going to put some initial cash injection into it, but overall they want to see that the asset is stable or that you're going to stabilize the asset and what's your business plan behind that. The other thing they want to see is a net worth qualifier. And so rather than it being our personal income, they want to see a set net worth. And the fun thing I think about commercial, and I'm sure it is this way on residential. I haven't gotten a pile into the creative side on residential at all. But the fun thing about commercial is that if you're missing a key to anything, whether it is, you know, the down payment, net worth, skill, <laughs> anything, you can bring somebody onto your team that fills that spot. And the commercial lender is fine with that. Like they expect you, they don't expect you to know everything or be everything. They just want to know that you're able to handle it or somebody on your team or somebody involved is able to handle it. That's such a great point, Amanda, because if you go to residential, a lot of times they want to see that that money is your money, the capital you're bringing to the table, and it's not anybody else's unless they gifted it to you. So it's a lot easier to 
have a money partner on the when you're going for a commercial loan than the residential loan. So what has happened next with this property? We closed. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Eventually. Um, we had just a whirlwind with that property. So we got through that and now we were moving ahead and we started on the due diligence component. Uh, we ticked into a new year and the bit, next big thing we had was an environmental issue. And so I kind of say that the environmental issue was a blessing in disguise because it wasn't a major, it was like a potential. And we did some background research to see. So with a commercial deal, you have to do like phase one environmental. And ours triggered a phase two environmental, which usually you want to either run away or really weigh out. Is it worth pursuing whatever's going to come? Because it's a pretty big capital outlay to do it. So they can run twelve to $15,000, I guess maybe higher if it's a bigger property. So it's not a small thing, but what that actually did for us was it bought us some time on the lending because we had been delayed at the beginning. So we didn't have our full lending approvals. And so we were able to get an extension with the sellers because quite frankly, if our phase one triggered a phase two, it's gonna do it for everybody else now who comes in after us. So sellers are really understanding of that in the commercial space. And so we did some due diligence behind the scenes to make sure that there was a high probability of the flag, which was a, a dry cleaner actually, like 40 years ago or 50 years ago in a strip mall across the back alley. And so what they used to do is dump chemical out the back door and then that goes into the soils and it doesn't go away. And so that can wreck properties all around it. So I always say like, don't mess around your environmentals because I don't see that becoming something less in the future. Like environmental stuff is very important these days um, and in terms of your future saleability, right? And so we had done some research to realize that it was very low probability that it was an actual dry cleaner across the back alley, that it was a high probability it was just a drop-off point based on the sheer square footage of the unit that they occupied, uh, some data that they had on file. And so because we were able to get our hands on that data, we were like, there's no way somebody operated a dry cleaner out of a hundred square feet. There's just no way a 10 by 10 room, right? And so we went ahead with it. We still had to go ahead and drill and go with the phase two. But that came back clean, so we know that it's good for the future in terms of when we sell it. But that also bought us some time because the next curveball that came at us, besides the, the phase two environmental, was the lending rules had changed. And so when we had set out our net worth more than qualified, you know, they were confident that we were good to go. But the lender changed the rules with the new year and with commercial lending. I'm not sure on residential, but in commercial lending. It doesn't matter when you started your financing process. It's what are the rules today? And those apply. So even though it was partway through our process and we were good before, we were now no longer qualifying because they weren't including anything under net worth except for cash and real estate holdings. And that was it. And at that time, we didn't have the land subdivided. So it doesn't, didn't count as some inflated amount. It was just what the land was. And then the second part to that was just, it didn't count any of our retirement counts. It didn't account for grain or equipment um, or anything like that. And we were like, we have all this stuff paid off or we had, you know, some assets, you know, that were ready to sell. <laughs> and they were like, we don't care. <laughs> but it was kind of one of those things where you're, 
you're stuck and it's a curveball, but you just, once again, you figure it out. So how did you figure it out? (laughs) (laughs) First, I I was like, really? Like at first I tried to like justify it and like not argue, but like bring our points and, you know, and try to angle it. And that was kind of one of the things I learned throughout this whole process was don't take no for an answer, but just like see what angle you can come in at to see if they'll say yes eventually. And so we just, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed. And then um, we basically came back with like, that's no. (laughs) And I think part of that had to do with the fact that this was our first multifamily. This was our first commercial deal. And then on top of it, instead of bringing money partners in the end, at this point, we were now going to pursue it by ourselves. So then they were like, well, like, shoot you guys. So I think it was just like a lot of layers where on the, the lender side, that they didn't weren't really comfortable bending the rules for us in our position. And so that's where I was like, okay, we'll bring in a net worth qualifier and that will be a, that wash that all away. And so I'd gotten to know quite a few people in the multifamily space who are either entering in or were established. And so I basically put out a post saying that we were, you know, offering equity with no money into our deal, which obviously attracted a lot of people. Um, and I, and I put it like a side note that you have to have a minimum net worth in it. So I was getting all kinds of messages, like you're giving away part of a deal and I don't have to put out any money. And people were like excited about it, which I mean, it, it was a good deal. And so we narrowed it down to three candidates who I thought were strong candidates. Um, and ultimately we chose one person to come alongside of us uh, into the deal. And our thought process on it was really hard because it was like, we've done all this work. We've structured this deal. This deal is going to be a home run. And now we have to give away equity on it. Like, I mean, it's not as much as we, we'd set out to partner on this deal in the first place. It was now looking like we're going to go on our own. So to bring somebody in was like, it felt kind of like, oh, but at the same time, I remember having this conversation with my husband and being like, our choice right now is 0% of a seven figure deal or 95% of a seven figure deal. Like suck it up. (laughs) It's a very small (laughs) price to pay. And so, and that's, that's where we wound up bringing in someone and the candidate we brought in had a strong track record in multifamily himself. He was both an active and a passive partner in multiple deals. He had a professional career that's very strong as well. So personally he was, he was good, but also he had a lot of knowledge that should something come up, we were, we were rookies that I felt like it should actually be a really strong partner to bring alongside of us. And so, yes, and I actually did not know this person prior, I don't know, a few months prior, I'd vetted him, but I knew him through people, but I didn't actually know him prior to all this. So you don't have to know everybody personally to be able to do these types of things. So many good nuggets there, man. I, I want to talk about like how you guys are managing this, but before we do, Ash and I were talking earlier this morning about, you know, as you start to scale your business, sometimes you have to make the decision of, do I want, like you said, a hundred percent ownership in a smaller business, or do I want, you know, 50% ownership of a much, much, much bigger business? And the answer is going to be different for everybody, right? Like some people, they, they want to stay small and lean and just them, and that works for them. And other people, they want, you know, 12 units at once, 50 units at once, 500 units at once. And as you tend to go that big, unless your your last name is like Hilton or Gates or something, like you're, you're probably going to need to work with other people to, to take down those bigger deals. So the, the way you kind of went through that thought process, I think is, is really 
instructive for for the listeners. Can we can we talk a bit about the property management side, right? Because prior to this deal, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Amanda, you you and your husband had never been landlords, right? Like you had done some flips before this, but you you dive head first into this 12 unit apartment complex, which is a big shift, right? So how did you all, you know, once you close and, and kudos to you on actually closing because you guys did a lot of a lot of good work to make that happen. Once you actually closed, what happens on day one? Like you get the keys to this 12 unit apartment complex. How the heck do you know what to do next? I think that was a big one. A lot of people thought we were completely nuts. Like you didn't just buy a house with one person you're dealing as a tenant. You bought 12 tenants right off the bat. And we actually had property management in place. And part of that was the lender's criteria, which honestly is kind of smart. <laughs> and so we did have property management in place right out of the gate. There's definitely a learning curve. I read a ton on property management because I was like, how do you know how to vet a property manager if you've never managed a property? <laughs> and that's a big, a big thing for me is just making sure that you know what to look for, what to ask, you know, what to expect, you know, managing your own expectations that you're not expecting them to be superheroes. And so I actually read several books and leading up to closing, you know, just ramming time in. And I'm like reading, like, what do we need to know? <laughs> what do we need to know next? We're actually buying this thing. So we did close on day one and get all the keys and then hand it over to our property manager. It was still very weird because it was kind of like having never had a rental property. Like I'd read a bunch of the rules and, you know, kind of read how things work. But I mean, now it's like you're here. So I guess for us, day one, that wasn't a huge hurdle. I mean, we sent out notices. We kind of did what the books told us to do. And, you know, we worked alongside our property managers, handing it off to them initially. So I guess initially we did property management that has changed since, but uh, initially we did hire property managers. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about the change, but before we do, even if there's a property manager in place, you still have to manage the property manager, right? And in, in the world of apartment syndications, this is called asset management, right? Where you're not the property manager, but you're still you know, managing the overall asset. What did your relationship look like with the property manager? And how did you kind of make sure that you were holding them accountable to doing a good job for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess <laughs> we had set out some initial, I knew there were some initial pain points in our market with management as a whole. Just talking to a lot of other multi-owners in the area, who do you use for management? Why? Like, you know, what were your, your experiences? And so with that, we kind of established uh, stuff in right out of the gate in terms of spending limits or um, expectations, I guess. And we kind of set up a hybrid situation where we weren't 100% hands-off. We were hands-off on the tenant interaction side, but we did, and maintenance, like general maintenance, we were hands-off on, but we took care of like the renovation side. So we had kind of a system where they would kind of give us a heads up if we had a vacancy coming, and then we could get things in line to prepare for the renovation and push it through and get it ready back and hand it back to them so it's ready to, to tenant again. So I guess a large part of that, I think, is having some communication and also talk to other owners what is a reasonable expectation from property management for your market. And then be sure to leverage other resources. Like I mentioned, I read some books on property management. Um, Brandon Turner's was really good resource. I also know someone who manages around a thousand units herself in our market privately. She's not, uh, I wish she was available publicly. <laughs> I'd probably tap into her. But yeah, so I think just, I guess the communication side, 
I guess leveraging the resources and the books that you've learned to kind of know what your expectation is and what each person's role should be and how it should go. And then to kind of follow up and be okay with saying, hey, this isn't meeting my expectation. Amanda, I heard you mention a couple of times people in your network or local investors in your area. How are you finding these people, meeting them and connecting with them? I'm a complete nerd. <laughs> I'm not okay. So in the sense, I do a lot on social media. And not only have I done a bunch on social media, but if people reach out to me and they want to learn or they want to connect who are locally, I've done some Zooms too, but I prefer person to person. I've connected with a lot of people that way. And so as such, I've just come across some really cool people who have reached out and you know want to learn what I'm doing. And then as a result, it's like I find out that they're doing amazing things and uh, and get connected to others through them. So I guess it's like actually being social on social media where I'm not just consuming and, and being open to new connections. Um, I have a girlfriend who says it's, you know, the making of a murder mystery where I'm like meeting people on Instagram, but then actually meeting them in real life. And she's like, really? <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> but it's it's made some really cool connections and being being open to that to say like, how can I bring you value? And then the return has been some really amazing people who have said like, hey, like, let me know if I can help you in any way, shape or form. And so I've made some cool connections from social media. That's great. And that's how Tony and I really met too, is <laughs> online. <laughs> so we did this podcast for probably four months together, I think, before we actually met in person. But I think that's great advice is to reach out to people. One of the first mastermind groups I ever was in was from Instagram. Uh, another investor had messaged, I think, eight of us and just started a group chat and said, hey, would you guys be interested in doing you know, a monthly call together and talking real estate and seeing how we can help each other? We did that for quite a while. And I, that was great. Like That never would have happened if she wouldn't have approached me and done that. But that was kind of like eye opening to me as to you know, build your Instagram and to network and meet all these different cool, exciting piece, people. And then you get the opportunity to meet them in real life and it becomes even more valuable to you and you get to meet people all across the country. So for sure, social media is a, a great tool. And I think a lot of people harp on it and say, well, you know, it's a, a time waster, but just like you said, you know, don't just be a consumer actually you know, use it to your advantage to network with people and to share and to, to inspire people and help them grow. And then they may even reach out to you too. Yeah, absolutely. And on the mastermind front too, like we, we did a, a multifamily mastermind and that was instrumental for meeting a lot of people in our very specific space that we wanted to head into. And once again, like, yeah, that just keeps multiplying those connections. Amanda, I want to ask about go into a little bit more of your uh, property management. So how did you find uh, your property manager? Uh, social media. <laughs> no, uh, well, actually, other investors in social media that I knew were in our market that I had gotten to know a bit that were in the multifamily space, specifically in our market. And so I just literally called each of them and had a chat about their managers, their systems, what they love, you know, what could be improved you know, and, and went from there. And so we don't have a ton of options in our market. Uh, we wouldn't meet some other bigger investors criteria with having 10 plus property. I think we have 10 here, but so that's basically how I found ours was through the best possible option from who I was talking to. Now you, you mentioned that you started off with a property manager. Are you still using that same company or have, have you transitioned into self-management 
What, what, what's been the change? We have pivoted into self-management and it's really an interesting move. And that is we look at where we want to head in the multifamily space and we look at those larger players in our market in, let's say, in Western Canada as a whole or Canada as a whole. And how are they operating? And a lot of them do in-house management. Um, they build all their systems in-house and as they add buildings, it just falls into the systems. And I've really looked into their companies and their books and the, the publicly traded ones and to see like, what are they doing? And so that was kind of where we decided to bring it in-house. We are having some vacancy issues that were well beyond what should be normal with no real good reason. We have a great you know, location for the property. Um, and so we decided that as we were bringing on our second building, uh, that we would pivot both of them into self-management. And with that, we got a lot of crazy, we people thought we were crazy to begin with, to take on 12 doors to begin with. And then the second part was like, okay, great. You guys aren't going to have a life now that you're going to be managing 24 units. Like, see ya. Um, now, Good property management, I think, is something that if we could tap into somebody who we felt really was great and efficient in our market, we probably would still hire it out. But we were able to leverage systems and using uh, online tools and really set up infrastructure, I'll call it, digital infrastructure to streamline a lot of stuff so we aren't handling tenants and toilets at all hours of the night or those kinds of things. So we're about six months in now, seven months into self-managing. And it's pretty great. I have my evenings. My my family still sees me. My kids enjoy life. <laughs> it's, it's actually working out really well. A key point was that you built the infrastructure and you built the systems in place so that it can run smoothly. And of course, things will still come up, but you put in the work when you started the management company so that it wasn't just chaos and you know you're trying to handle a ton of different things. You have these systems and all the structure put in place. So what kind of software are you using to manage these units? We are using Buildium. Yeah. So we find it really fantastic in terms of we've automated a lot of payments. We use largely pad agreements, pre-authorized debits. So their rents come automatically out on the first. I think we're about 80% uptake on that, which is really awesome. The rest are all digital payments. So we aren't running door to door to collect rent on the first. Like I'm not spending hours of my life on the first of every month. Like, oh my gosh, we can't go anywhere. So that's pretty great. And then in terms of the tenant portal, I love that it allows us to operate like a big player, even though we're still small, like people wouldn't know it necessarily. Uh, you know, we have a maintenance request line. So instead of them calling the, the phone number for in, besides emergency calls, they can just put in maintenance requests on the portal. We can update them like, you know, this is the timeline where it'll get fixed, you know, or it'll get tagged onto our monthly maintenance, those kinds of things. And then the other parts that you can like implement, and, and this is part that we're growing with, is as we have more and more team members that are more consistent, like we have casual team members right now, but we can plug it in so that we don't even have to like, like general stuff we won't have to approve. Like we'll have kind of set parameters with our trades that it will automatically shoot off to them. So we won't even see it. So the beautiful thing about this is as we're bringing people in, like our bookkeeper is probably our biggest one right now that we use, but she can you know, handle a lot of the stuff too in terms of admin stuff as we bring her into more of an admin role, handling some of those things. So a lot of it is just cutting down on the unnecessary communication. It's not like we never wanna see our tenants, but at the same time, I don't feel like they want us in their lives all the time. So the more we can 
kind of step out and I'll have to like constantly be running after all these like little things and it can just be handled in a very automated system, the better it is for everyone. So one, one follow up question for me, Amanda is when you're, and this is kind of going back to the acquisition piece, cause we didn't really touch on this, but are you buying these as value add, uh, multifamily where you're kind of going in, you're doing some renovation and you're raising the rents or are these more turnkey ready on day one? You're just kind of operating a, an already running business. They're both. So we buy for cash flow. I want to see cash flow out of the gate and a strong cash flow, like a healthy cash flow for the buy. But I also want a value add component. So we want twofold. We want the cake and the icing. We want both. So we call it a slow burr. And we're kind of in that two to five year. Five year would be our absolute max for a full refinance. And that would be a pretty plain Jane. Nothing like nothing crazy happened. Rents barely kind of moved and, you know, everything went really slow. That's our five-year target. But two years is kind of right now on the one property. We actually hit our two-year targets, I guess, in about a month's time. We'll actually have hit our two-year targets in just seven months. So we're super stoked on that one. So, yeah, so we're kind of like a slow burr, cash-flowing machine hybrid. Yeah, but that's what it is in the multifamily space, right? Is that it, it's a burb, like you said, it's over 12 to 18 to sometimes 24 months to get all of those units renovated to show that the increase in NOI is there. And then you can go back and, and kind of get your money back out that way. So it, it's burring, but on a much bigger scale with more zeros, which in this case is working in your favor, not so much the, the scary zeros, right? I think that's the fun part is just seeing how you're boosting the net operating income, not not the value of what your neighbor's house sold for. Um, but as you boost that net operating income and now you bring efficiencies in, um, just little items like switching out the toilets or changing your lighting or whatever you're doing, all those little items. And then, you know, the actual renovations, of course, as well, um, can really make a big difference on the NOI at the end of the day. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a complete breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. So RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability and earnings. With Plaid certified tenant income and asset reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. It's time to say goodbye to that whole gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. Now, Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering the six-month plan for only $1. Visit rentready.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP Like Bigger Pockets Investor for six months of rent ready for only $1. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? 
I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. So we talked about your flipping, Amanda, and then we talked about your multifamily. What about your latest deal, the land development? Let's hear about that and how you found that deal and you acquired it and what's happening on it now. Um, so this one is kind of fun because I wasn't looking for it necessarily when we bought it. Um, I had had this kind of dream and I joked around with friends with it years ago and I called it the, like the cul-de-sac and what it was was we were going to all build acreages all of us friends together and you know our kids were going to come out and play and they're going to all be together I'm like it'll be like our own little cult <laughs> and so and so it's been like this ongoing joke for years and so when we had decided to move out to an acreage we had I pulled into this development and there was a development board up and there was like a bunch of lots listed and I didn't know what was available and what wasn't. And so I just sent a message to the owners. It was private saying I'm interested in and I list off like seven lots that would fit this house plan that we had in mind one day and just be the way the sun is. Right. And they responded back thinking I was a developer wanting to buy seven lots when I was really just uh, at the time a house buyer wanting to build a house. And so they uh, they said that. Things had changed and they decided not to move ahead with the development. Like the road wasn't built yet in the back section. And they basically decided like with where they were at in life and where their kids had already moved away to the coast, like quite a ways away from us, that rather than staying and building and doing out the whole thing, that they would just rather sell it and kind of move on. They had done some other deals and stuff. So it wasn't something that they needed to stay to finish. Um, so they asked us if we'd be interested in buying the whole thing, plus their their actual residence that was off in a corner. And I was kind of excited. And I was like, this is because when I pulled up to this board, the way it was drawn with this little green space in the center of the one area, it was like I joked around with my friends in this dream that I had years ago. So it was this whole like, I don't even care. I don't want it. Like, I was just wanting to be a part of it. I didn't care about owning it. So for them to come around and be like, do you want to buy it? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> not to be like a little nerdy here but i was expecting it to be a crazy price uh just because it was like oh this is you know there, you know there's a potential for development it was farmland at the time and so we basically looked at it and realized that there was some issues in terms of moving ahead with the second part of it big question marks whether the development could ever go ahead and so we approached it to them as we were going to buy this as if we could never develop it there was the farmland in the back, so we knew that we could farm it and still come away okay on it and do okay on the property no matter what. And so we basically wound up buying this thing as 
maybe we'll be able to develop it, but we don't know if we'll be able to get past these hurdles with some of the restrictions that were on it with the development committee or the planning committee. And so that was kind of one of the things that we, we pursued it knowing that it was going to at least bring us some income from the farmland and maybe it would become a home run if we could get through some of those hurdles and get people to start saying yes to us. So I think like just another great example, Amanda, of you being kind of tenacious and creative with your ability to uh, kind of put some of these deals together. Love, 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 love the story. Uh, I guess one one last question. So, and, and maybe I missed as you were going through it, but how, how did you guys end up financing? Because it was what, 60, how many acres? 61. 61 acres or yeah. something around there. How, how did you guys finance that purchase? Was it just money you guys had saved up? Was it more creative financing? What did that look like? We actually bought it as our personal residence. So we sold our property. We actually put a sizable down payment on it. it was, this was before the time when we we believed in ever touching your home equity. We, we said never, ever, 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 ever touch your home equity. <laughs> and then we were like, well, maybe for real estate, we'll do that. <laughs> but so we basically bought it as a normal owner-occupied property which took a little bit because they were like, it's a farm. I'm like, at the time we weren't farmers yet. So I was like, but we're not farmers. <laughs> they're like, it's a farm. So you have to go farm lending. I'm like, but we're not farmers. And then ta-da, we're, we're farmers. Um, <laughs> so we were able to get residential lending, like normal house lending. We found a bank. We, we got a lot of no's first because they said it was too much land. Like they would max out at 10 acres and that was it. Um, and then we found two banks that we had relationship with that were willing to say yes and and lend on it as a normal owner occupied so it actually wound up being probably one of our easiest things to finance beautiful and then you you said you also end up subdividing your 61 acres what was the benefit to you all as the owners to subdivide that land why not just leave it as one big 61 acre parcel i guess we hummed and hawed about it and if it was a larger parcel we probably would have kept it farmland because there is good like good returns on that but since the process had already started and it was down to 61 acres, the benefit to it was we got to farm it for a few years here prior to subdividing. So it actually paid for our mortgage and property taxes. It, it's our house hack, our farm hack, as you, you called it earlier. I laughed. So it's our an unorthodox house hack. And, you know, that really helped us, too, during all this period, you know, of having different odds and ends and just lots of craziness happening. If you can delete your house expense, that just makes a huge, you know, in terms of being more comfortable. And then the upside to splitting off 15, we kept 10 acres for ourselves. The 15 lots is just sheerly, there's lots of return. There's, there's a fair bit of demand for acreage type properties. It's 15 minutes. It's right off a main highway. Um, so it's just, it makes a lot of sense. It's on a resident, it's future residential corridors, how it's all zoned. So for the future plan, in our area, that was the, the the end game or the target down the road was that this whole corridor would become residential. So it aligned with the community's future vision, according to their official community plan. Um, so I guess for us in the end, turning those 15 lots out too would also give us the capital to pursue some larger multifamily, some more larger development as well. So we will be doing a combination of bare land sales. We've already had a couple of land sales here go through. And then we are also going to be developing some of the lots. And we've been having a conversation lately, like how many lots do we sell before we just decide to build all the houses and build the community? And for us, that kind of pivots into where we're heading in the future. I know this sounds like, oh my gosh, you guys are doing everything, but there is 
purpose in the madness and why we're doing all of it. You you guys, I think, are a great example of not letting, not knowing how to do something stop you from doing something, right? Like you, you just kind of put your foot on the gas and you poke your head out the window and you hope you're going in the right direction. And, you know, if you're off course, you, you make a correction, and you get there. But you, you guys are a great example of, of being creative and, and being focused and being tenacious. I love it. On that note, let, let's talk about mindset. We, we've kind of you know, skimmed over this a little bit throughout the episode and you dropped some nuggets here and there, but I really want to drill down into to how you and your and your husband approach this from from a mindset standpoint, right? Because what what holds a lot of investors back, Amanda, isn't that they don't know what to do, is that they're too afraid, too scared, don't have the confidence to actually do it. So if you think about Amanda before that very first flip, what were some of the misconceptions you had about real estate investing that turned out to not be true, right? Some fears that you had, some obstacles that you imagined that turned out to, to just not be there. I think the big one is before you get started, a lot of the times the focus is on what could go wrong rather than what could go right. And I, I firmly believe that you should look at both sides, but I've become a person who's like more focused on the what is like the good. And often when we think of like the absolute worst case scenario, like the worst possible thing that could happen, we took possession of our first multi April 1st, 2020. The world had gone nuts. We pulled conditions before the world went nuts at the beginning of March. And so one of the things that was terrifying at that point was we were taking this huge property, but like here, the politicians had basically said, like, don't worry about paying your rent. <laughs> and, and I mean, this was another thing. So this is, you know, before Amanda would have went like, you guys are out of your mind, but really there's nothing you can do at that point. But being in the situation, I would say we sat down and we looked at it. We're like, worst case scenario, 12 people don't pay rent on the first. And then they don't pay rent the next month. And we have two months with zero people paying rent. And once we looked at it that way, I was like, we count that as an acquisition cost. We'll pretend like this is an extra bit that came out of our slush fund and then we'll move along. And then we also looked at it as what are the odds that zero out of 12 don't pay their rent? It's pretty low. And so I think that's kind of the big one is that I think we are programmed to think worst case scenario all the time. And, you know, and, and that's being wise and using wisdom to look at the worst case and, you know, like, oh, this could be risky. But I think there's also wisdom in going, but what could go right? And what is the probability of everything hitting the fan at once? Like, what is the probability? And what, how can you mitigate that risk? And, and, and then focus on what could go right. And so I'm not saying just to stay in the clouds, but acknowledge the risk and then consider what is the probability of all of that perfect storm happening? And what can you do to mitigate some of that to improve your chances and then focus on what the positive outcome could be. That is such a great point, Amanda. As you were talking, I was like writing notes as to, I, I want you rookie listeners to hear how you were talking about like worst case scenario, you have to cover those two months of rent and that's part of your acquisition cost. Have your reserves in place and be okay with spending those reserves. Be prepared to spend those reserves. That is what it's there for. That is not... You know, that shouldn't be your life savings. That should be money that you can put towards your property if a worst case scenario happens. And just like Amanda said, that what is the worst case scenario? What is that 
fear you have and then figure out how to overcome it. Plan that out ahead of time. What is stopping you? What is making you scared? And build out a plan like, okay, worst case scenario, there's a hurricane. The roof blows off. Okay, well, can I get insurance that would cover that? How much would a new roof cost to put back on and throw that money into reserves? So I I think that was a great, that was one of the best um, mindset answers we've had in a while. So thank you. So I'm going to take us to our rookie request line. Uh, The rookie request line is for anyone to call in at 1-888-5-ROOKIE and you guys can leave us a voicemail and ask a question and we may play it on our show for one of our guests to answer. Hey, my name is Jesse Fidelis and I'm calling here from Fort Mill, South Carolina. And my question is, so just recently, about two weeks ago, me and my wife just purchased our first property. I plan to move out in about a year or two and turn that into a rental. But what would you guys suggest would be my next step? Like how how should I have to proceed to get my, I guess, my first investment property, my next property? What do you guys think should be my, my next step? Thank you. I guess narrowing down what you want. And not not just what you think you can do, but actually looking at the big picture is where you're headed and then start making decisions now that will align with that. So and and I guess that's really digging down with your partner or if it's just yourself and just saying, like, what do you truly want in life? What do you want for your future and what's the next step to get there and then start pursuing that rather than looking for a specific property or what's the next best deal? What's the next best deal for where you are headed and how do you need to prepare yourself in order to take that next step? That's such a great point. Build your your investing business around what you want your lifestyle to look at. So you need to know what you want your lifestyle to be before you can actually build the the business around it. That's a great point. Tony, do you want to highlight who our rookie rock star is this week? I do. Um, and if you all want to be featured as a rookie rock star, get active in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. We're at 30,000 plus strong uh, in that group. But today's rookie rock star is Min. I'm, I'm going to read Min's uh, full post because I, I, it's a really cool story. But Min said, I'm so grateful for Bigger Pockets. Uh, bigger Pockets changed my life for the better. I always knew I wanted to do real estate investing, but wasn't able to find the courage until a wise friend introduced me to the BP podcast. After listening, breathing, eating, drinking, anything related to bigger pockets, I felt confident enough to pull the trigger and close on my first rental property, a beautiful duplex in May, and then a fourplex in July this year. And on that duplex, uh, men bought it for $45,000 or his turnkey with no rehab, and it appraised at purchased for $60,000. And then the fourplex men bought for $60,000, put another thirty dollars into the rehab, and it appraised for $130,000. So love hearing stories like that, men. Big congratulations to you. Yeah, that is so awesome. Congratulations. And I feel like Min is describing me and Tony too with the listening, breathing, eating, drinking, bigger pockets. <laughs> eating, drinking. It's still <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell everyone where they can reach out to you and find some more information on you? Yes, um, I'm active on social media. So you can find me at Multifamily Amanda. And I share all the nerdy details on multifamily. So to give other people the tools to move ahead as well. Well, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed having you on the show today. I am Ashley at Wealth Room Rentals and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson on Instagram. 
Make sure you guys have joined the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group and don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search Real Estate Rookie and we will see you guys on Saturday for a Rookie Reply. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.